We shall now turn to the consideration of God's Word. And we may just presently turn to the chapter that we read, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. And we shall read just now from verse 18, Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. As we continue to consider the Christianity of the first century, we come to see the commission, consider the commission that the Savior gave to the apostles that they began uh, after his ascension to fulfill. He gave them a commission, as we read here, to go and teach all nations. And they began to do that after he had ascended. And we have the record in the New Testament. We begin with the birth of the Savior. And then we come to the revelation of the Savior in the the concluding book of the canon of Scripture. We begin with the visible Son of God in our nature and we come to the end in Revelation where we see the invisible Savior now glorified and exalted appearing. We begin with the Son of God humiliated in humiliation and then we end with the Savior manifesting himself as the glorified, exalted Redeemer. And so the whole New Testament, which is, of course, covering the history of the beginning of the New Testament church, that period is covered by the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the apostles, but at the very heart of it, At the very center of it is one person. If we begin with the baptism of the Savior, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, probably 27 A.D., 29 A.D., somewhere in there, probably 27 A.D., then from that until the close of the last of the apostles, John, it's a period of around 70 years. That's the period we're talking about. A period of 70 years. A very small period of time in the history of men and indeed the history of the church. So it isn't a large uh, period of time that we're trying to work our way through. It's a very short period of time. And so every detail is important. And if Christ 
is at the very center of it. Every word he spoke, every action he did, every occurrence in his ministry is of supreme importance. And we have the Savior here, and one of the things that he said during his ministry was he had not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill. And as I said last Lord's Day and perhaps in the previous, if we're to understand the scriptures, we must read the Bible as one whole, complete unit of truth. We cannot understand the Old Testament unless we read the New. We cannot understand the New Testament without knowledge of the Old Testament. And I, when we're reading here from Matthew, and we were singing from Psalm 96, we're singing from the Old Testament, and we're reading in the New Testament. Did we see the connection when we were singing Psalm 96, for example, Among the heathen nations his glory do declare, and unto all the people show his works that wondrous are. Don't we see how that perfectly fits with the commission that the Savior gave his apostles in Matthew 28? For greets the Lord, and greatly he is to be magnified. Yea, worthy to be feared is he above all, Gods beside all the heathen gods. Go and teach them. Bring to them the knowledge of the one true God. For all the gods are idols dumb, which blinded nations fear. But our God is the Lord by whom the heavens created were. Verse 7. Do ye ascribe unto the Lord of people every tribe? Glory to ye unto the Lord, and mighty power ascribe. And we could go on down through that psalm. But this is why I say it's so important that we read the old and the new together, because one helps us to understand the other. And the Great Commission was already there in the Old Testament. But now... The Savior, the glorious head of the church, commissions his disciples to do something of great importance. It isn't something they may choose to do or not. He commands them to do it. Let's look at what we read. Go ye therefore, because all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. There wouldn't be any point in going if I didn't have all power in heaven and in earth. But because I do have, go ye therefore and teach all nations. What does he tell them to do? To teach. That's their commission. To teach. Now, you can't teach if you don't know the subject. 
No parent would have any confidence that their children was going to get any decent education if the teacher was incompetent. And if the teacher doesn't know her or his subject. So these apostles, when Jesus says, go and teach, they had to go with an understanding of what they were to teach. And he tells them they are to go and teach all nations. Now you can imagine these disciples... They don't know very much about any of the nations in reality. They may have heard of some of them, but they're not far traveled. This is going to be an experience for them, meeting people they've never met, their cultures, their worship, their religion, their work, their language. They're going to meet with people that they basically know nothing about, and yet they are to teach them. And what are they to teach them? Verse 20. Teaching them to observe. It isn't a matter of just bringing information to them. It isn't just informing them of things they've never heard of before, or informing them of truth that they need to know They are to teach them to observe. Now, these are things they've never observed before. They've had their own observances. They've their own religious observances. They have their idol gods and their priesthoods, and they will observe days, and they will observe events, and they will engage in all their heathen worship. The teaching that they are to take to the world is to change it. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And what has he commanded them to do? To teach. He has commanded them to teach. He has commanded them. They are under his authority. He has just told them all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And now I'm exercising the power that I possess. And with that authority, I am commanding you to go and teach the nations and to teach them to observe. Teach them their lives have to change. Teach them their religions have to change. Teach them everything has to change. They're now to observe things they've never observed before. Now, one of the things that we should note here is this. This is the early church. And every nation was to hear the same message, was to be taught the same things. And therefore they were all to learn to observe the same things. Observe the same customs, observe the same practices, observe the same laws, observe the same worship, 
exercises are exercises, spiritual exercises, in worship. Now, this is what we would believe began when the Savior ascended on high, and these apostles begin this ministry. They begin to teach. And they begin to teach in Jerusalem. This is what the Savior told them they were to do. They were to start in Jerusalem. And you might think, well, what would they need to learn about religion in Jerusalem? What would they need to learn to observe in Jerusalem? But Jesus, when he was ascending, before he left his disciples, he told them they, were, they would receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. How will they be witnesses to him? They will be witnesses not only of his resurrection, but they will testify to his doctrine, to his teaching. Witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So they began in Jerusalem to teach what was to be observed in the universal church. Now you will hear again and again and again every particular ecclesiastical denomination, what will they be saying? We, and very often we only, we represent the New Testament church. We represent in our style, in our customs, in our practices, and so on, we represent the Christianity of the first century. And you will find that down through history, Denomination after denomination, when it comes into existence, usually it is, a, uh, it is a secession from some previous denomination or it is a breakaway from some other branch of the church and so on. And why do they uh, claim uh, legality for their existence? Because we're seeking to reform. There are things we don't agree with and we need to put them right. There are things lacking. There are things that are not right, and so we're going to put them right, and we're going to represent biblical Christianity, New Testament Christianity, and so on. And that's why you've got all the different movements today from Presbyterianism, Methodism, Congregationalism, Baptist churches, uh, Pentecostals of every description. Why? Because they're all saying, we represent the New Testament church. This is how the New Testament church and the Acts of the Apostles and the churches, the seven churches in Asia and the churches founded by Paul and the, that he wrote letters to. We represent that kind of Christianity. Well, with the best intentions in the world, we fear 
that sufficient attention is not actually given to what the New Testament church and the early Christians really did believe and practice. And here's the key to it all. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. What's the vital question then? Did Jesus command this? When did he command it? Where did he command it? Why did he command it? To whom did he command it? That's the vital question. That's the key that opens up to us our understanding of what the early Christians were really like. And remember, we've already noted they almost to a man at the beginning... They were actually Jews or proselytes. That's where the Christianity that, as it was called in the church in Antioch, that's where it's rooted. The first converts were uh, converted Jews or proselytes, uh, those who adhered to the worship of Judaism teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, we must understand this. If Jesus had never been born, if the Son of God had never come into this world, there would be no New Testament. There would be no apostles. There would be no disciples. There would be no church. It's as simple as that. So we cannot escape from what is to be observed as taught or commanded by the Savior. Now, if he commanded something and we don't obey it, what does that mean? You know what Jesus said in John chapter 14? If you love me, what will you do? You will keep my commandments. In John chapter 14, there's two references to the keeping of the commandments. And in verse 12, this is what Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth in me the works that I shall do, we noted this last Lord's Day, uh, that I do shall he also do, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. But then look down to verse 21. As they go out to carry the word to the nations, which Jesus had not done, they're doing greater things than he has done, Listen to what Jesus says, verse 21 of John 14. He that hath my commandments, how will they have the commandments? The apostles will teach them. They possess them to begin with, then they go and teach them. 
What does Jesus say? He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. He it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now isn't that a very searching statement coming from the lips of the Savior. How will the church be assured of being in fellowship with the Father and with his Son? To whom will God manifest himself? To whom will he come? To whom will he manifest <coughs> His presence and His power and His grace to whom? He that hath my commandments and keepeth them. He it is that loveth me. So you see, when we read these words, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and if they observe them, it is evidence they love me. If they don't observe them, it is evidence they don't love me, or at least they don't love me as they should. But to whom will I grant my presence? To whom will I come and manifest myself? To them who keep my commandments. Now, isn't that so important? We can hear, even in our day and generation, of revivals breaking out here and revivals breaking out there in universities and in different <coughs> communities. And yet, we don't see the evidence of the keeping of Christ's commandments. We don't see any effort to be conformed to his commandments, to his teaching. Now, therefore, we have to ask, well, where are we going to get those commandments? Where are we going to find the authoritative statements and commandments of the Savior that we have to observe? Well, to begin with, we all know the answer, the Scriptures we have to go into that short period of 70 years. And we have to listen to the Savior speaking. We have to pay attention to what he taught. And we aren't just to consider what he said as some form of information. We are to recognize its authority. And we must submit to it and we must obey it. Well, let's go to the what's normally referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon of Jesus Christ. Uh, on the Mount, when he addressed the people and when he addressed his disciples, because there is a repeated statement, I've referred to it before, 
but it is of great importance when we're considering how the church is to manifest its love for the Savior. You hear people coming out with sentimental statements, Oh, I love Jesus. I was horrified to hear just recently talking to a minister who was having problems with people taken up with this so-called contemporary Christian music. And he was telling me some of the lyrics that he had heard them singing. Jesus is my boyfriend. I love him to hug me. And this kind of trash, reducing the eternal Son of God to such a low state. And yet, such people claim wonderful presence of God's Spirit. And they become emotional and they become all excited. Oh, it's wonderful, the presence of the Spirit. Listen to what Jesus has to say. Seven times throughout the fifth chapter of Matthew, he repeats the words, and you will understand that the hearers of the Savior, they were Jews, and seven had a significance for them in particular. For them in their thinking, seven was the number of completion and wholeness and perfection. Completion. And it is the Savior's teaching that completes the revelation of God. It completes it. He is the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the author. He's the finisher. There's nothing more to be said. When he is finished speaking, he has completed the full revelation of God. He is God himself manifest in the flesh. He is the very word, the eternal word made flesh. And we're told in Hebrews that God in times past spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But now he has spoken unto us by his Son. He is the final word. He completes the revelation of God to you and to me. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. To begin with, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that was something that they'd never heard before. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was the greatest display of righteousness they ever saw. They could not think of being more righteous than the Pharisees, even Saul of Tarsus. 
He said he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As touching the law, what? He had kept it perfectly. It was as though he couldn't be more righteous. What Jesus is saying is, there's a righteousness that is superior to that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and except it is your righteousness, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And they must have been greatly puzzled by that. But then the Savior says again in verse 22, But I say unto you, verse 28, But I say unto you, and then verse 32, 34, 39, and again in 44, seven times I say unto you. But why was the Savior doing this? He was responding to what the people before him, his audience, what they had been taught, what they had heard, and how they interpreted and understood what they heard. Verse 21 of Matthew 5. Ye have heard. Now, from whom did they hear? Who were their religious teachers who taught them the law, who taught them the commandments, who required of them obedience to 361 different commandments and so on? Who was doing this? Go to the end of the chapter 7 where the sermon is completed and we read in verse 28, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings. And what was he saying? Ye have heard, but I say unto you, ye have heard, but I say unto you, I'm explaining what you have heard correctly. I am telling you what it really means, how you are to understand it. And what uh, we read, it came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. They were astonished. They had never heard the law explained like this before. They had never heard the words of the prophets explained to them like this before. And what are we told? Verse 29, For he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. He taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. Now, why would this be recorded, do you think? That he taught them as having authority. Because, you see, as far as the scribes and the Pharisees were concerned, Jesus had no authority. They never gave him any authority. In fact, they tried to get rid of him. They accused him of blasphemy. They tried to find occasions to kill him because they were the authority who authorized 
teachers. They had to have credibility as the scribes, as the teachers of Israel, as the rabbis. They were responsible for teaching. And the only teaching the people had was the teaching from the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus had to say on different occasions, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. And one of the woes is because they were shutting the door to the kingdom to the people. They were shutting them out. Because they were presenting them with such laws and such what they called protection of the law that was given by Moses. They were to, they thought they were building a fence around it. You've heard me say before, for example, thou shalt not commit adultery. So how do we prevent men from committing adultery? We'll put a fence around that commandment and we will tell them men are not to look on a woman and a woman's not to look on a man. And so to keep themselves safe, they would walk down the street with their head looking their eyes toward the ground and very often they would bump into a post or whatever because of this fence, these extra commandments. And as far as they were concerned, they couldn't understand. The heart has to be changed. If you want the behavior to change, the heart has got to be changed. This is what Jesus is teaching them. And he's saying... Ye have heard from the scribes and the Pharisees, but I say unto you. Now what has happened in the professing church? We listen to everything and everybody but Christ himself. Multitudes They listen to the Pope and his declarations and his decrees. Jesus says, but I say unto you, the cardinals and the bishops, they say the church believes this, the church requires that. Jesus says, but I say unto you, churches, Organizations, groups can say this and that and the other. We have to learn to have our ears attuned. To listen, what does Jesus say? I say unto you, you've listened to him. You've listened to them. You've listened to her. You've listened to this party and that party. But I say unto you. And what does Jesus say? If you love me, you listen to me. You pay attention to my commandments, to what I say. Now, when Jesus commissioned these these apostles to go into the world, the heathen, pagan world, They don't really know what lies ahead of them. But he makes a promise to them to encourage them. Teaching them to observe all things 
Whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, there's something to remember, and lo, don't forget this, I am with you always. Wherever you go to teach in my name and to present my commandments to be observed, I am with you. How important that is. I am with you. What would it avail these disciples if he was not with them? They would command and no one would listen. They would command in Christ's name the church is to observe this, the people of God are to observe that, and they would pay no attention. Why should they? But Jesus said, Lo, I am with you. And so when they go to preach, they go to teach, they have this assurance, whatever the result, whatever the response, whatever man's attitude might be, we know this. Our Savior, who has risen and exalted in glory, is present with us. Now, we might wonder then when we see how things develop in the early church. And this is one of the things that I think we got to keep in mind. The early church was not perfect. It had problems. And the apostles had problems. You see, every teacher knows this that all their pupils don't learn at the same rate. Some are slow learners. Some are very fast learners. There are those, and they need more teaching and more help to understand. They need things explained in greater detail and so on, because we're all different. And that is one of the things that very often is overlooked in the church of Jesus Christ. In any one congregation, none of the people of God are all go- they're, they're, they're not all going to be in the same level of understanding. And the danger is that some may think they're more mature and that they're better read And they're better theologians. Why isn't that he doesn't know what I know? Why isn't that she hasn't progressed like me? You see, they were to teach. And that was going to require patience. And that was going to require long-suffering. And they were going to have to deal with all kinds of cases and all kinds of temperaments, and all kinds of backgrounds and conditions, because they were sent to teach. Now, sometimes there's a bit of confusion between preaching and teaching. Preaching is basically announcing. When a man goes to preach the gospel, he announces the gospel. And people, when they hear it, are to believe it. 
The gospel is preached that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, that he's made an atonement for sin, and so on, and the details of justification, and so on. And it's preached for them to believe. But teaching requires time. Teaching requires patience. Teaching to observe. Teaching that changes the life. Teaching that alters the thinking. Teaching that produces obedience. Teaching that results in greater love for the Savior's commandments. That's what they were to do. And you see how the apostles, they were teaching what they themselves had learned, but my, what patience they needed in some of the churches. But when we go to John, the first general epistle of John, he tells us, and I believe that what John said, Peter could have said, Paul could have said, First John chapter 1. Listen to his language. That, First John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, listen, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, Declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, look at what John's saying. I was with Jesus. I touched him. I heard him. I was near to him. He was my teacher. He taught me for three years. And then he commissioned me to go and teach the nations. And here's John saying, do you know what we're teaching? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. We're not making up any message of our own. We're doing exactly what he told us to do. And you see, again, not only is this the case with John, and he uh, is representative of the uh, other apostles, but you have in the writings one of the most difficult churches that the apostle Paul had to deal with was the church in Corinth. They, They were not observing what was commanded. Their discipline was lacking. The sacrament was being abused. Their fellowship was being fragmented. There was all kinds of problems in the church at Corinth. But listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, and we're familiar with these words in every communion. For I have received of the Lord that which also... I delivered unto you. You see what's happening in the New Testament church? 
the apostles are seeking the New Testament church inside that little period of time, 70 years. The church is to be conformed and to observe what he, the Savior, the head of the church, commanded. I have received of the Lord. I didn't receive it even from the apostles. I received it from the Lord. It's firsthand that which also I delivered unto you. I'm just as it were the messenger, the message boy. I'm bringing what he said was to be observed to you. And he's rebuking them here because they're not observing it. Again, in the chapter 15 of this same first epistle to the Corinthians, in verse 3, what does Paul say? For I have delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. You can see John and Paul are examples of how the commission in Matthew 28 is being fulfilled. They are bringing to their audiences, to the congregations, wherever they are, they're bringing to them what Christ commanded them. Now, when Paul writes to the Galatians, he confirms to them, and remember, he writes to the Galatians, and he has problems in the church in Galatia as well. He stands in doubt of some of those who were professing to be the disciples of the Savior. And in uh, the first of Galatians, the verse 11, this is what Paul says. And he, he says, If any man, earlier, if any man preach any other gospel than that which I preach unto you, let him be accursed. And the reason he's able to speak that way is because in verse 11 he says, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. And therefore, because it's not after man, he doesn't respond very well to it at times. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So everything that the apostles brought, even in preaching as well as teaching, it was all from one source, from the Savior himself. Now, when you look at the condition of the churches at times, we can see that the early church was needing time to be brought into conformity to the commands of the Savior to observe what he commanded. And the apostles had to be patient. And the apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Galatians, he said he would start all over again, as, as it were, uh, to convince them and persuade them of the truth. Now, when the Savior says they are to teach them to observe 
all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Then we must look to see what they observed. What did the early church observe? What kind of observance was required? How did the apostles understand what was to be observed? Well, first of all, it is important that when we see the appointment when Judas Iscariot hanged himself, and instead of 12 disciples, there's 11. We find that in uh, preparation for the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 1, there's a replacement, an apostle, a new apostle. There's only 11, so now there's 12. But listen to what the apostles understood of their position. They don't present themselves as superior, as above, elevated to some high position above the ordinary believers. There was no such a thing as the laity and the clergy. There was no such a thing at the beginning. And what do we read in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 15? We may read from verse uh, 13 just to get the connection. Acts 1, verse 13. When they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotes and Judas the brother of James. Now, you might think upon reading that, just looking at it, well, we know who the apostles are. They're named in the Gospels. We really don't need that information to be repeated. There's very good reason why we have all these names. Because, to begin with, if you read through the New Testament and read through the history of the 70-year period we're talking about, how many of the apostles do you read about? How many of their ministries are we informed about? We read about Paul. We read about Peter. We read about John. But where did all the rest go? If they were apostles, don't we need to know about them? Aren't they the very foundation of the church? Shouldn't we hear about them rather than their inferiors? But what do we read about? Who preached the great sermon, the great moving sermon on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 were converted? It was Peter. But who preached the next great sermon that was so effective with a different result? It wasn't an apostle. It was Stephen. It was Stephen, it wasn't Peter, it wasn't John, it wasn't James. 
It was Stephen, and he was not an apostle. It's very interesting when you look at the result. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you. You teach what I've commanded. I'm with you. And don't forget that. And when Stephen was preaching that great sermon, Jesus was looking on. And as they stoned Stephen to death, what did he say? I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He saw the Savior looking on as his life was being taken from him. Jesus could have stopped it. He saw it. He knew what was happening, but he didn't. He allowed Stephen to be martyred. Interesting that Augustine speaks of the incident and he said, well, if we didn't have the glorious, gracious words of Stephen when he was stoned to death, we wouldn't have had the Apostle Paul. What was Stephen saying when he was being stoned to death? Lay not this sin to their charge. And who was standing holding the garments of the men who were stoning Stephen to death? Saul of Tarsus. And there was Stephen as Saul was holding the garments of those who were stoning the first martyr. And he's praying, I see Jesus, and he prays to him, Jesus, lay not this into their charge. The, the apostle Paul would never forget those words. What did Jesus say to him? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks because his conscience must have troubled him. And he would never forget when he would ever think of that incident that day I stood there. I had no mercy. I didn't care. I was glad to see him die. And when they came back and they took their garments out of my hands, I could say, well done. But there was ringing in his ears the prayer of that martyr, lay not the sin of Saul of Tarsus to his charge. He would never forget that. But in connection with these uh, sermons, and this is what we're trying to bring out, there was no distinction between, as it were, the clergy and the laity because they were to teach a principle. The priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. And when you, as I said, on the day whenever the little group are gathered together, these, verse 14 of Acts 1, these continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. 
There's the little synagogue, as it were. And there's no distinction between the man and the woman. Like in the temple, the woman had to stay separate from the man and so on. And even in the established synagogues, a curtain would very often be between the man and the woman. But here they are together, and the spirit of prayer is given to them. And then in verse 15, we read this. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120, Men and brethren, the scripture must needs have been fulfilled which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. He had obtained part of the apostolic ministry. But things changed. He betrayed the Lord and so on. And without going into the details of the verses, go down to verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein. And his bishopric, his bishopric, his apostleship, and his bishopric, let another take. So, when they appoint someone to take it, what happens? Verse 21, Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, that's the beginning of the Savior's ministry, unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained, listen, to be a witness with us of his resurrection. That's what it's all about. The apostles were primarily witnesses to the resurrection. It wasn't their office that was so important. It was the fact they were witnesses to Christ's resurrection because they were to go and teach the nations of a risen Savior. Not one who merely died to atone for sin, but one that rose again to justify those for whom he had made an atonement. And this is primarily something we must understand. The apostles, it wasn't so much an office as a ministry, witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, when we come to, for example, uh, in the Acts uh, of the Apostles, chapter 6, what do we find? Previous to chapter 6, we find that the people had all things in common. And many of them sold their possessions. And what did they do with the proceeds? 
chapter 4 of Acts, verse 37, having land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. They didn't just scatter it around or give it out themselves. They brought it to the apostles. There was this recognition by the people. They themselves, they believed they were appointed to be witnesses of the resurrection. But because of the divine appointment by the Savior, the head of the church, they were recognized by the people as having a peculiar, particular ministry that others didn't have. Because not everyone had witnessed the resurrection of the Savior. Among the Gentiles, they certainly hadn't. Jesus revealed himself to up to 500 on one occasion, but not everyone had seen the risen Savior. Not everyone could testify to the reality of it, but these could. And the people recognized there's a link, a direct link, between these men and the Savior. They knew him, like John. We heard him. We touched him. We listened to him. We were taught by him. And so there is this beginning of this recognition of these men as being authorized to do uh, and to render a service that not others were qualified or appointed to do. And they come and they lay everything down at the apostles' feet. Now, when we come to chapter 6, something's wrong. The widows of the Greeks are being neglected. Everything is laid at the apostles' feet to be distributed as everyone needed. The apostles haven't fulfilled the role very well, have they? Under their watch, as they would say in modern terms, the widows of the Greeks have been neglected. And the murmuring starts. So the apostles have to act. And we shall have to wait to see and consider how they acted on another occasion. But this is one of the things that we have to observe. It doesn't matter what preconceived ideas we have, what our prejudices might be. This is how the church was, how the Christians were, the disciples were in the first 70 years of apostolic ministry. But we shall leave it there. May God bless his word. Let us pray. Our gracious and eternal God, we thank thee that the church in this world has a living head, one who is king and lord of the church, one who has been given all power in heaven and in earth, power to command his people, power to command them to observe his teaching and the practices that he taught his apostles. May it be our desire in the midst of all the confusion of our day and generation, may it be our desire to hear what Jesus has to say. May his voice be heard in our ears, 
But I say unto you, and Abel is then to give heed, and pardon is now and receive us for Christ's sake. Amen.